What's good everyone, Coach D here with The Shift Method. Hope y'all are having a great day. Hey, I got another one of those podcast style non-interview videos for you. And before we get any further, for those who are watching, I'm sure you noticed something different. We gotta address the elephant in the room, or I guess I should say the caterpillar maybe. Uh, if you're just listening on audio, you can't tell, your boy's rocking the stash right now, right? I'm kind of liking it. I might keep it. Who knows, we'll see how it goes, but let me know in the comments down below what y'all think about the stash, man. I'm, I'm still deciding. Again, I really like it, but might have to change it up. We'll see what's going on. But anyway, like I said, we're going into blog post and vlog number two here on our three-part blog series about obesity. Uh, in blog number one, I talked about how you know, what obesity is from a definition and a modern definition standpoint, along with some statistics associated with it, what are some of the causes, and overall how it negatively impacts health. In part two here, we're actually gonna talk about how can we assess obesity as coaches and health practitioners in general. I wanna be very, very clear here. This is not medical advice. If you have any questions or concerns about your health overall, please be sure to speak with your primary care provider. I'm here merely as a coach to give education on some statistics, along with some info on how you can measure or potentially assess obesity with your client. And as always, y'all know I'm bringing out these videos, two of them a week now, right? A podcast style and a YouTube style video. So be sure if you haven't already to like, comment, share, and subscribe. I greatly appreciate that. We got the merch on the store, we got services, in person and virtual, y'all know the drill, and of course, daily content on the socials, so please be sure to follow. Without further ado, let's jump right into it. So again, this is going to be vlog series number two of three, where we're talking about how do we assess obesity as accurately as possible. And so in order to do that, we're gonna go over a little bit of statistics here. I promise I'm not gonna bore you, but it is important to have a baseline level of understanding. So that way when I mention these terms, you can understand okay, is this a good test? Is this maybe not the best test? Or why is this test better than another possibly? So let's kind of just dive into some terms here. The first one we got to get down is what's called validity, right? Is something valid or does it actually measure what it says it's going to measure? The example that I use in my blog post is the example of an x-ray, right? We all know what x-rays do. They look and see if you got a broken bone more or less, right? And so for uh, deciphering or understanding broken bones, x-rays are extremely valid. But you wouldn't use an x-ray to say, take your temperature and check if you have a fever, right? X-rays and the use of the technology is not valid when you're assessing your temperature. So that is understanding that validity is how is the test actually measuring what it's saying to measure. Next is reliability. Is something reliable? Can I duplicate my results over time? It's one thing to get one good measurement, that's great, but am I gonna get a wildly different, different one if I do the test again? And now we also have different types of reliability that are worth noting. We have inter-rater reliability and test-retest reliability. With inter-rater reliability, this is important because can two different people get the same or at least close to the same measurement? Meaning, let's say I'm really good at doing a particular test on someone. Let's say, for example, doing an MRI, but then someone else, a colleague of mine on the same patient does the MRI and they always get vastly different results. So 
we don't have very good inter-rater reliability because between two people conducting the test, they're not lining up in terms of the accuracy of the results. Test-retest reliability simply states, can one person between tests produce the same results? So for example, going back to the x-ray example, if I were to take your x-ray and to diagnose, say you had a broken tibia, am I able to redo the test again and again and again under as identical settings as possible and get the same results with me as the solo administer of the test? So again, understanding reliability, can your test be reliable from test to test, whether that's just one person doing it or multiple people doing it on the same subject? And we also got practicality. While this isn't required, it is gonna be important, especially as we work with coaches and oftentimes just dealing with people financially and just what they have access to. Practicality means, can you actually do it or does it make sense to do given your setting? We're gonna talk about this a little bit more when we get to the exact measurements we can do, but we know in exercise science, the gold standard as of right now for measuring body fat is what's called the DEXA scan or dual X-ray absorbometry where basically you can see people's bone mineral density or their, their bone content, as well as deep dive into their body fat and muscle mass. But the problem is these machines are very rare and they're quite expensive to use. So your average gym is not gonna have that. And so while it may be a gold standard, it doesn't matter because it's not practical for us to use. So practicality is also something you wanna make sure that you have when you're thinking about your test protocols to assess obesity. The last two terms we have to talk about are specificity and sensitivity. The easiest way that I can explain this is think about in the context of, again, we're gonna use disease as an example here, right? So we'll use obesity in our example. Something that is high in specificity means that it is likely to rule in that someone has the disease. Whereas high sensitivity means that it's very likely to rule out the disease. So for example, a test that is high in specificity for obesity, if you test positive for that disease, meaning it's saying you have obesity, the chances of that being true are very high. So it limits the amount of false negatives that you have, right? If you got caught by the test, chances are the test meant to catch you and it was in fact accurate. Versus sensitivity, meaning let's say you did a test for obesity and you did not get caught by the test, right? You were negative for it. If you have a test with really good sensitivity, this means we can say with relative certainty that, hey, you weren't caught and that was the right call here is that you are not qualified or you don't meet the criteria for this disease. In our case, our discussion, obesity. Okay, now that we had our terminology down, now let's start going into some of the assessments that I like to use and teach my coaches in order to help assess if their client is a good candidate for weight loss. Again, huge disclaimer, this is not diagnostic tools here. We are not saying that if you test positive, you for sure have obesity, you should always consult your primary care physician regarding that information. And again, these are tests. They are imperfect. They have varying levels of all those terms that we just talked about. So you have to take them with a grain of salt, which we will explain some of the limitations of these tests, but know that they are at your disposal to help make a more accurate assessment of your client or patient's situation regarding obesity. So the first one we gotta talk about is BMI. Now, before you jump on me, I know BMI gets a bad rap in the fitness industry, but you might actually be surprised in my take here, and I'm gonna show you all some information about it that 
maybe we'll adjust or at least challenge your way of thinking in how you can utilize BMI for your patients or clients. As always, whenever you're talking about something, it's good to know how something originated. And so the BMI as we know it today was actually founded by a Belgian physicist or mathematician named Adolf Ketelet in 1832. At the time, Ketelet wanted to figure out what the proportions were of your typical man in his time frame, in his location in Belgium. And so he was trying to come up with different formulas and proportions for how can we determine what the quote unquote average man is. At the time, he called it the Ketelet Index, which would later become known as BMI today. Ketelet did this by taking your correlation between your height and your weight, where it would be your body weight in kilograms over your height in meters squared. And to get that number, you would then have a proportion of those two components. However, this formula didn't really pick up any popularity and wasn't really designed to be used for body fat percentage. And so it kind of went away to the wayside until the 1970s when a doctor named Ansel Keys came around and was trying to figure out some correlation between body size or at the time what was called ideal weight and how it impacted people's health and the overall quality and quantity of their life. So using this property of what he termed ideal weight, he was trying to see if you could predict higher levels of cardiovascular disease, other diseases as well as early death. Uh, but unfortunately, it didn't work out very well. And so they were trying to find another anthropometric measurement to see if that would help quantify it better. They ended up trying to use the elbow measurement and tried to determine if someone had a frame, a, I believe it was small, medium, or large frame, and then compare that with your ideal weight and see if that helps stratify the information better to get a better predictor of your overall health. And so that didn't work too until Keyes brought back Ketelet's index, or what he then termed BMI, which was then ultimately adopted by the World Health Organization in the 1990s for quantifying health in general and measuring obesity. So again, BMI of body mass index, we have different classifications based on the relationship between your height and your weight. Generally speaking, if you are beneath 18.5, you are considered underweight. If you have a BMI of 18.5 to 24.9, you're considered a normal weight. If you have a BMI of 25 to 29.9, you are considered having overweight. And then if you have a BMI of 30 plus, you are considered to have obesity. And it goes into various classifications as the number gets higher. Now again, BMI is not a perfect test. I'll be the first to tell you. But I'm gonna go over some of the common complaints with BMI, rightfully so, and we're gonna kind of digest them one by one and see if there maybe can be some practicality for actually using it. The first one, it's quite obvious. Again, this was made, this overall test was made in the 1800s by a guy who wasn't even originally trying to use it for body fat percentage and quantifying disease. And it wasn't used on a population that was holistic or representative of the country we live in, right? Ketelet did this experimentation on relatively young European men. And so the problem is that you can have different disease processes when you include women or different ethnic groups. For example, breast cancer obviously is more prominent in women and certain diseases like sickle cell anemia may impact different ethnic groups as opposed to Caucasian populations. And that's why when you do 
any kind of medical testing, you want a broad array of people, both men and women, and of course of different ethnic groups to make sure that we have an understanding of how people are impacted, if differently at all. And so pre-1990s, I would absolutely say, yeah, this test is flawed because when it comes to research, you wanna ensure that you have a wide range of population, men and women, different age groups, different ethnic groups, because different diseases can impact them differently. And so that is something that is definitely a fair critique. And with BMI, we have a large sample size across the age range, across men and women, across different ethnic groups, well over 13,000 participants, showing that, yes, BMI does correlate well with obesity. This means that BMI has a very high specificity, meaning if you test positive, so in this case, the positive test for obesity is 30 or plus, if you test positive, the chances that you have obesity are actually quite high. And so what we see for men and women respectively, men in this sample size, 99% of them, if you had a BMI of 30 or greater, did in fact have excess adiposity and poor health outcomes. And for women, it was 95% if you had a BMI of 30 or higher, had excess adiposity. And so you see, if you have a BMI of 30, chances are that it's going to possibly have negative health consequences. Not perfect, but pretty good on the specificity side. However, the problem with BMI is the sensitivity. And this is where I think a lot of people get it mixed up because I think they think the opposite of BMI. So when it comes to sensitivity, a lot of people are actually missed by BMI. What this means is, again, if you have a BMI of 30 or greater, chances are you probably may be a good candidate for losing adiposity. However, what about the people that don't have a BMI of 30? Well, what we see is that because the sensitivity for BMI is poor, there's actually a lot of people that don't get caught by the test, don't have a BMI of 30, and still have excess adiposity and would benefit from losing said adiposity. In fact, when we look at this in greater detail, we see that we miss about two thirds of men and about half of women that should have been caught by the test. Meaning that your BMI wasn't 30, so it seemed like everything was fine, but then when you actually measure their body fat in detail later, they actually should have been caught by the test. And so BMI actually doesn't over-report people if anything, it underreports the amount of people that have excess adiposity. And that's why there's been debate of possibly making the criteria for BMI lower than 30, because some people may argue that somewhere in that 25 to 29.9 range in that having overweight category may catch more people to make the test more sensitive. But there's a lot more nuance there that is kind of out of the scope of this conversation. And so again, BMI, Pretty specific test. If you test positive, meaning you have 30 or plus, you probably could benefit from losing some excess adiposity. If it misses you, you may not have excess adiposity, but the test is very sensitive, and so it may have missed a lot of people that it should have otherwise caught. Now, I know what you're saying. Damien, what the heck, man? My BMI, I test it, and over the years, it's always high. And I hear this all the time from fitness pros, from active people, and I get it. Again, BMI is not a perfect test, but what I call this is the coach's bias, meaning as a coach, we ourselves are very healthy and active compared to the general population on average. And a lot of times, 
coaches hang out with other coaches and we're around active people. And so we have a biased lens of what healthy or what I guess we should say normal in the population looks like. Meaning if you take a bunch of health coaches or a bunch of athletes or a bunch of high level clients and you do their BMI, there may be a chance that their BMI is over 30 because they have excess muscle tissue compared to their body fat. The common example I like to use is the Saquon Barkley example. If you're not a football fan, go Google Saquon Barkley, AKA Saquads Barkley, because his quads are just absolutely massive. The guy is about six feet tall, weighs 235 pounds, and so his BMI is well over 30. But if you looked at the guy and you knew his body fat percentage, if you tested it, the man is by no means obese at all. And so people see that example, or other examples like it, and they say, see Damien, BMI is flawed, it's telling me that I'm obese or have obesity when I'm not. And to that I would say, that's an outlier. Because how many Saquon Barclays are there truly in the world? How many people are coaches and are active? Remember, less than a quarter of Americans self-report meeting physical activity guidelines, and we know that about 42% of the population is dealing with obesity. And so knowing that information, I think we have to do our best to remove our biases from our interaction and our environment as coaches and realize that we're talking about the general population here. And so that's why I think BMI can be an initially good screening criteria for understanding obesity better. Now, again, it's important to remember BMI is just one screening tool. It's not perfect and it should not be used in isolation. It should help prompt you for further investigation to find out if in fact my client may benefit from a weight loss program. And so this is good information because now that we know BMI has good specificity, but low sensitivity, researchers are trying to find out how can we stratify or improve the sensitivity of the test to hopefully give us a better predictive value for overall health. And lo and behold, we found one in waist circumference. Waist circumference, if you're not familiar, is kind of just a measurement of general abdominal adiposity. As I mentioned kind of in blog post number one, we know that excess abdominal adiposity tends to lead to negative health outcomes because that location and having excess adiposity tends to produce prothrombotic materials in your body. Uh, you can think about abdominal adiposity when it's done in an unhealthy and chronic way as almost like this hormone secreting gland that is prothrombotic and releasing these compounds that are kind of negative towards metabolic and cardiovascular health. So for waist circumference, we know that in general, it has a really good correlation in and of itself with excess adiposity. But when I combine it with BMI, as you'll see in the chart in the article, I can even get a more granular understanding of, okay, this person may be of higher risk of certain metabolic diseases or certain health concerns later in their life. And so generally speaking, for men, we wanna have a waist circumference of less than 40, for women, less than 35. And again, this is just general standard. So for example, let's say you have someone who has a BMI greater than 30, like Saquon Barkley, but you measure their waist circumference and find out that it's nowhere near 40. That's how you can use it as kind of a checks and balance system. Or let's say you have someone and they're in the overweight category, like, hmm, maybe BMI was supposed to catch them because it has low sensitivity, but it didn't. Then you do a waist circumference measurement and lo and behold, ah, waist circumference is higher than I thought it was gonna be. Again, you might be a good candidate to 
lower your body fat percentage, and therefore ultimately improve your quality and quantity of life. And we got good research behind this. One of the studies that I linked showed over 600,000 participants and how waist circumference has a pretty good correlation with overall quality of life, risk of disease, and all-cause mortality. Now, in terms of measuring the waist circumference, I like to use the CDC's version of it. They get their information and their large uh, sample size of participants through Enzhane's research. And so they use the apex of the iliac crest because I know certain places might say, you know, the second to last rib or the belly button or where your hip bone is. I use the apex of the iliac crest so it's consistent and it goes in line with where the research tends to measure. All right, so we got waist circumference down and again, putting that with BMI can be very helpful. Now we can talk about just general body fat percentage. Again, body fat, right? The amount of adiposity that you have on your body. Of course, body fat is good, but in excess, that's when we start seeing some of the problems that we have. And so for men, we wanna have a body fat less than 25 and for women, less than 32. These are kind of our general cutoffs as to where we would classify as someone having obesity. Now, again, there's a lot of ways that you can measure body fat percentage, but I'm gonna try and use two ways that are pretty practical and have good validity and reliability compared to the gold standard DEXA scan. The first is skinfold caliper, specifically the Jackson Pollock three site method. So skinfold caliper, it's exactly what it sounds like. You're going to take this little machine and you're going to actually pinch portions of your skin. What it, this is doing is measuring subcutaneous fat and then it uses formulas based on your age and the size of the folds of your subcutaneous fat to give you an estimate of your body fat percentage. The Jackson Pollock method is a three-site method. For men, it uses the chest, abdomen, and thigh. For women, it uses the triceps, the superiliac, and the thigh as well. And so what you do is you do the skin full test. You do each site twice, rotating through them. The, you take the average of those two numbers add all the sites together and then compare it with your age group in a table and you're able to get a rough estimate of your body fat percentage. Now again, this test does have its limitations. It can have user error, right? So if you're not trained well with it, if you're not comfortable and confident with it, you can definitely have skewed results. Uh, and then the quality of people's skin, where if it's, you know, it's elasticity, it's hydration, a lot of things can impact in that way. But what we see is that when compared to DEXA, if done in the hands of a skilled practitioner, just like BIA, which we're gonna talk about here, you can actually have a margin of error of about 3.5% plus or minus. And so while not perfect, it can be done relatively consistently and have a valid measurement if you do compare it. The next thing you can use is BIA or bioelectrical impedance analysis. That's a mouthful, right? So I just say BIA. BIA basically is usually a handheld device, which you can see in the article, or something that you would stand on like an in-body test that essentially sends a low voltage current through your body to create kind of a circuit. Now, impedance is the best way you could think about it, the resistance to flow. So as a current goes through your body, there are different structures in your body that are going to resist the flow differently. Water, muscle, bone, and fat, all have varying levels of electrical conductivity and resistance. And so by sending that signal and measuring that resistance, the machine can then estimate how much body fat and other materials are in your body in a percentage. Of course, because this uses impedance to kind of measure your body fat, 
there is going to be some wiggle room here when it comes to hydration. So how hydrated you are, if you're a woman and you're on your menstrual cycle or if you're pregnant, if you have any metal on your skin, if your hands are sweaty or you have a high skin temperature, basically anything that can throw up conductivity and resistance to flow with electricity can mess up this test. And so again, while it can be as accurate as skin folds with a good practitioner compared to DEXA, there are some things you have to make sure that are good in your setting so that way you don't have skewed results between your tests. And then lastly, isn't really a test of itself, it's more so just an understanding of certain conditions and that is what's known as metabolic syndrome. For those who don't know, metabolic syndrome is a collection of various conditions and if your client has three or more of these conditions present, it is likely that they're going to have negative health outcomes long-term and it has a very good correlation with obesity overall. These criteria, the first one is going to be waist circumference. So for men, that's having a waist circumference of 40 inches or greater. For women, having a waist circumference of 35 inches or greater. Next one is blood pressure. If you have a resting blood pressure of 130 over 85 or higher, that is considered an inclusion criteria. For fasting triglycerides, anything that is greater than 150 is going to be considered checking off for the criteria here. For fasting HDL, high density lipoprotein, right, your cholesterol, we wanna make sure that men have less than 40 milligrams per deciliter and women have 50 or less milligrams per deciliter. And then last but not least, we have fasting glucose. We wanna make sure that for men and women both, we have a fasting glucose of 100 milligrams per deciliter or less. And so now you have an idea of these different tools and understandings of various disease processes that can correlate well with obesity. Again, this is not to say that just because someone may test positive for one of these things or you do these tests, that it ultimately means that that person has obesity. Uh, knowing that these are tests, they're tools to help you get better understanding to determine if your client or patient would be a better candidate for losing adiposity to ultimately improve their quality and quantity of life. And a big thing to remember too, is that you shouldn't always do assessments for everyone. I know I might get a lot of flack for that, but it's important to understand that people are not robots, they have emotions. And so you need to understand if your client is in a good space to do some of these assessments. If you ever done a skin fold test, it can be very invasive and may not be the best test for every client. Even something as simple to maybe some of us as getting on the scale can be very triggering and traumatic for people. And so you have to determine, is the test actually going to provide valuable information for my client in the moment? Or do I need to alter my strategies on how I test, when I test, and when it's appropriate to test based on where my client is mentally? Because there's other ways that we can track progress in relation to general health, things like energy, mood, the way your clothes fit, strength, endurance, sleep quality, the things that we could track are endless. And so as a coach, as a practitioner, you have to know your client and make that call to make sure you're setting them up for success. And the third and final part that we'll talk about when I post my last vlog here is going to be, what the hell do we do about obesity? So we know what it is, we know how to assess it pretty well, what do we do about it? And so we'll talk all things about food, exercise, and even medications along with other things. So be sure you tune in for that one. But as always, thank y'all so much for tuning in. I really appreciate y'all. Hope y'all found this video fun and 
educational. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to like, comment, share, and subscribe. Again, be sure to check out theshiftmethod.org. Cop some merch. We still got that new store up. Be sure to check out social media. Y'all know I post every single day. And we have the long form video for Spotify and our YouTube style videos coming out every single week. Thank y'all so much again, and I'll see y'all in the next one. Later.